Coming soon to home video. The video nasties A through Z with death by DVD. The burning and cannibal apocalypse. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and a man who wanted his rubbers lubed. It's Hank. Absolutely shit, man. Look, I asked for lubricated rubbers. These aren't lubricated rubbers, you understand that? What am I, Masters and Johnson? We're talking about the burning because it's another video nasties episode. And we, of course, have been doing them alphabetically because that's what you do when you pull a list off of Wikipedia. And, um, well, hey, next on, you don't make us sound like we're a learned show. You actually have a book published, a real piece of hardware. You know, you, you actually are, are researching this. I'm using Wikipedia and possibly the Severin video catalog. Well, I've had a I got a bunch of different books and documentaries and tons of shit on video nasties because it's a subject I've been fascinated by for the last like 15 years or so. Uh, you'd heard all about it like in the 80s and the, the 90s about the UK censoring videos and some outright banning others. And on the, the first 72 list, going through them, you kind of, especially if you hadn't seen all of them, you kind of go through and you, you want to see what the big hubbub was about. And that's kind of what we've been doing. I've seen, a, I think I've seen actually all these movies before. I don't think I, I have a blind spot in any of these films. I've seen them at least once uh, in my lifetime. So if you haven't seen them, track them down. Look up a w list on Wikipedia. It's the same goddamn list. I mean, you have the you have the section one, you have the section two, and you kind of have the section three uh, video nasties, and we're still in section one. And next is... The Burning from 19, was it 1982? 1980, good God, I'm way off. It was shot, I think, the, the same, it was shot the exact same time as Sleepaway Camp, actually. It was, uh, I think, across the uh, the lake, yeah. same area as Sleepaway Camp. There's jokes that they could see each other's set from filming. But I think one of the most enticing things with the video nasties is alone the title, and it's something that you've made notion of. It's, it's just such a very British title, Nasty nasty yeah it's just you can hear tim curry saying it and it lingers on your tongue but it's very enticing and it really makes you want to hunt them down and it's just something about that word itself nasty that you feel a little bit dirty and some of these movies certainly make you feel a little bit dirty but some of them are like axe aka lisa lisa which we've previously covered that it's all right but it's a drag i mean a lot of these are a drag some of the nazi exploitation films are a real real drag but tonight's territory is where we're getting into the fun some zone. decent ones some actually fun to watch horror films and uh some horror films that even if you're not watching like going for a video nasties completionist list you probably need to watch on your own especially the first one we're talking about uh, the burning i think because, the burning um, is a quintessential horror film i think this is a must see and not alone in the camp genre but in the slasher genre and the annals oh, yeah. of american specifically horror specifically the slasher genre because this is the heyday of slashers this is pre-1984 slashers and it's got and, savini um, doing effects so i mean this is the heyday of tom and uh, every interview every documentary you can watch about this uh, is where you hear the infamous Tom Savini Vietnam story and one of the things I always found really intriguing is I think this is the one time you'll hear Savini say I didn't really do the, the, the best most accurate job that he's always had a bit of an issue with how Cropsey came out and the effects not looking incredibly like a, a burn victim but still it's great it's, you can't really complain when it comes to Savini doing effects 
What's crazy about The Burning specifically, as far as the slasher genre goes, is this movie, like speaking of someone who was a child of the 80s, this one disappeared. You couldn't really find it. No one talked about The Burning for years and years and years. And I think a good portion of that, even in America, the um, the Thorn EMI video release of it was censored. It wasn't uh, the MPA got to it and cut out most of the violence. Uh, like the last scene, the uh, the scene where uh, they eventually take down Cropsey at the end, they literally just kind of set him on fire, and it's real choppy cuts at the end of it. And it's kind of unwatchable um, for for all the cuts that they made in it, and it just kind of disappeared, and you could never really find it in video stores. I eventually tracked it down at a video store, um, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, and bought their copy of it. That was the first time I had ever seen it. Or like This was probably a few years before they put out the uh, the first uncut uh, DVD release. And seeing the R-rated version, I never got really into it. I was like, eh, that's kind of generic slasher. It's kind of boring. And then watching the uncut version, Jesus Christ, does that make a world of difference in this film? And I will say, Tom Savini's not too happy with his special effects. I'm sorry, Tom, but I mean, they're, they're pretty adequate throughout most of the film. It's pretty, not, definitely not his pretty, best work. Pretty good. But it's definitely some work that I would say that it needs a little bit of applause. Some stuff in it I think is pretty amazing. Like uh, one of the things that's not so amazing is Fisher Stevens getting his fingers cut off. That looks incredibly shitty. Oh, cheap, I, but... I love that. I, I love that scene and his weird little scream. I, I like all of that. Uh, oh, uh, that's the, the the scene in the film. And you know you're watching the uncut version um, when you get to that scene, because up until that point, it, uh, the R-rated version, there's just like, you know, maybe some shortened death scenes. Maybe you don't get the full effect, but you can never really tell until you get to the the uh, raft massacre scene, the burning. And then all bets are off and it's like, holy fuck, he massacred those kids because in the R-rated version, it is crazy how you can't even tell what the hell is going on in that scene. It's just kind of like some really like maybe the whole scene lasts about five seconds and all the shots are chopped by, you know, like huge frames are cut out of it. And it's just kind of like, I guess he just killed all those, those kids. But this is an instance where an uncut version really does make a difference. Uh, I would say the same thing in uh, my bloody Valentine, the RA version is a little anemic, but when you get that uncut version, it's just like, Holy fuck, this movie was gory as shit. Um, same thing with the burning. I really have to say I picked up the Shout Factory edition of The Burning, and I don't remember a lot of the scenes that I witnessed. Like, I've seen this movie, I, I, I dare say, maybe up to 20 times. It's been kind of quintessential. It's something I enjoyed as a teenager. Because mind you, we've brought this up on the show before, but your very own Hank was a camp counselor at one point in his life. And camp horror movies are... You were the Jason Alexander. <laughs> I, I, I'm always confused if he's a counselor or a camper. Maybe he's a counselor in training. I think he's a camper, even though he looks 30 fucking five. Yeah, I, I really do. I don't see. I can't. Maybe if we go back Fisher to... Fisher Stevens looks about 12, and he's in the same bunk as like Jason Alexander, who looks like to be about 32, 33. Three somewhere in there. There's no, uh, and I mean, it's one of those things like Greece that you've got 35 year olds playing teenagers. There's no real um, uh, connection to what happened with the casting here. We'll get to that in a little bit, but definitely, um, it, it, it. I mean, I I can't speak for everyone that was a camp counselor or went to camp, but there were a lot of after hours nights watching things like m multiple Friday the Thirteenth films, and for some reason, the thing was always popular. Maybe just because you're out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people you don't know. But it always, uh, you know, was a memory of mine. And I sat down and I watched the Shout Factory Blu-ray, and there's a lot of scenes of violence. There's some nudity. There's some dialogue that I just never recall at all. So it's something that is kind of ever-changing. We've talked about this a lot with some of the other video nasties, but most of these movies have been cut and changed 50, 60 times, especially for Grindhouse and Drive-In Circuits. A lot of these movies were independently cut by editors especially in the, the southern united states to fit whatever bill that they could play Local standards and shit um so yeah there's just so many whatever if you torrented this if you bought a vhs if you had an old dvd there's just so many different copies but um the shout factory i i i, I hate you know praising and kissing ass to big soulless companies but i thoroughly enjoyed it and had a lot of fun features on it, it of course had a documentary with the legendary Tom Savini, and he's always a pleasure to listen to. But one of the things that really pushes me with this is so many of the movies that are on the nasties list and so many movies we cover are by legends and are by 
very well-known uh, horror directors or, or, you know, legendary directors in general. But Tony Malum, prior to this, had done the Genesis concert movie, and he had done the, like, 78-77 Winter Olympics uh, official movie prior to that. And Harvey Weinstein found him he at the time was running a rock and roll promotion company with a guy named Corky Berger or Corky, Corky Bergman. I think it's Corky Berger. They were running a promotion company together and had seen the movie and he wanted to move into, uh, Harvey wanted to move into film with his brother Bob and this was kind of their for, foray into it. They knew the Cropsy story. They were both from Buffalo, New York and it's a legendary New York idea. It's a, a New York camp story about Cropsy. We also have another movie about it, Madman which I, I, I don't remember the story as to why none of these movies ended up becoming or called Cropsy. I know The Burning initially was going to be called The uh, the Cropsy Murders or The Cropsy Maniacs, something or else. Probably. I, this is just a shot in the dark. Um, it might have something to do with the fact that Cropsy is not particularly known outside of the New York area. He is now. I mean, it's, it's an urban myth that is passed down, especially through documentaries and stuff. But Cropsy at the time was just kind of a Staten Island sort of thing where it just kind of spread out through the state. And not everybody across America knew Cropsy, so you need to kind of get a inflammatory title, pun definitely intended. And The Burning makes sense. I mean, that's a clever title. And, I mean, pretty much where I was going at is... It, it... Well, it was the original title of Don't Go in the House was The Burning, which we'll be talking about at another point when we get into other video nasties. So, which it, is actually more apt for that film than it is this film. Yeah, that's probably, what I was going to say. It, say. it actually works better with that than what we're dealing with here. But uh, the whole premise and why this movie ended up happening is Harvey Weinstein, the rapist mutated dick, Harvey Weinstein, he wanted to make a foray into films with his brother, and they had this idea, and it was just kind of a, a wing and a prayer. Uh, I don't believe Tony Malum had ever really made a narrative feature before. I could very well be wrong with that. I, I've not fact-checked myself, but I don't think he'd made a feature-length narrative, at least at, at that extent. So he went into this, came over to the United States, uh, and this was before—I mean, this is the first Miramax film, but this is before The Power of um, the Weinstein brothers. So most everyone involved in this was Tony's crew. Uh, Bob has a writing credit on it, but as Tony has stated, that it, it, he came up with a lot of ideas. And um, who, who was the other screenwriter for this? I, I cannot remember. I know you got Bob and Harvey, and Tony also gets a story credit, but he. long story short is the everyone involved in this, Tony Malum pretty much brought over. I think the casting and a lot of... Um, non-essential thing. Well, casting is very essential, but some of the non-major roles to filming the movie came down to Bob and Harvey. But um, uh, Peter Lawrence, Jesus, Peter Lawrence was the main, I feel, screenwriter on this. All the dialogue, all the witticism came down to uh, Peter Lawrence and Bob Weinstein, apparently. And then the story credits go to Tony and Harvey and Brad Gray uh, as the original story. Long, long story shorter. This literally came from two rich kids from Buffalo wanting to make movies, and they had enough money at the time. It's scary how much money and power the Weinsteins have always had, but they got it done. What's interesting, though, is they started off making a horror film, and who would have thought that 40 years later, how much horror they would have brought onto the fucking world? Because they brought lots of horror into the world, ruined lots of people's lives, tons of people's lives. Um, but... Separating ourselves from the Harvey Weinstein angle on this and just simply viewing this as a piece of art. And, well, and that's, um, that's the hardest part with this is there's so much to say. There's so much we could say. We, we are film critics, and I think all of our passion truly comes from film. So this is something in our backyard that certainly needs to be addressed and talked about. But we just got to get through the burning. It's a video nasty. We didn't pick it. We're not trying to celebrate there were well, I'll in still any like facet, burning. But, I yeah. I don't think he's going to get residuals from it probably at this point, maybe, but I don't feel as I'm supporting. This is a fucking 40 year old me movie, people. I mean, we can. Well, I mean, it's the same it. argument you can have with Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion or, you know, Manhattan or anything with Woody Allen. There's there's a line and we haven't gotten there. We haven't really had a, a big opinion on it or stated a lot of other things outside of what we're stating right now. But uh, true and to the point is we're just talking about the burning. We know and you know he's a despicable, absolutely horrible human being. And there definitely will be a time that we'll rant and rave about it. But it's more about Tony Malum and, and the burning right now. I don't know. And that would really be its strong points is Tony Malum as a director. And that's what works in this film is he decided to go for this very soft 
look with the filters. And back in the day, used to call it Vaseline cam. Um, but it gives this ethereal look to the film. It's that 1980s, very soft. Um, Sleepaway Camp doesn't have it. Uh, You've got the Panaflex, but, I think, is a big point, too, with this. That it's, uh, you know, uh, I can't think, uh, pre-Steadicam, the Panaflex Glide that was, you know, kind of, it was created oh, yeah. by the same guy that, one of the many people that helped create the Steadicam. But there's something about the fluency and how the movie just, it's not just the soft edges, it's just how the movement almost gives you this weird dreamlike French nouveau feeling and it's just a slasher but it's got this incredibly and and giving credit to what Tony had done prior to this a very rock and roll feeling it really does feel like a a weird dreamy music video you're just waiting for fucking Sting to walk out at some point and the rest of the police you know Stuart Copeland he'd be there and then like probably its second biggest strength is the score by Rick Wakeman uh, because it is fucking nuts. Uh, I don't know if it even fits the movie particularly well. I don't care. Uh, it makes the movie what it is, and it really kind of gives it this huge synth vibe, and the synth, it's just out of fucking control. Like, if you just listen to the soundtrack on its own, it does not feel like a horror film soundtrack particularly. Um, it I feel both feels... movies we have tonight have very bizarre soundtracks that don't feel horror at all. No, and this one is definitely no exception to that, and I think it's one of its biggest strengths. Tom Savini comes in on the back end on that and actually giving it some some gore and some some actual depth and meatiness to it. Um, it for the characters in it, the, I think the character sketches are pretty well done. I mean, you get a good idea who everybody is. I mean, you got fucking Ratner um, playing this little skeevy motherfucker who playing rat yeah everybody makes fun of him but he kind of needs to be made fun of because he is a fucking creep he's looking at chicks in the shower yeah, he's okay a creep. that's one of the biggest things that has always bugged me with this movie is you get this implication that he's some like poor weasel that can't defend himself but the very first time that we're exposed truly to the character is him just being a creep i mean there's he's being a creep yeah he's a fucking uh, asshole. glazer is might be a bit of a caveman but his reaction i don't think was completely unnecessary i mean and it's Laser's by far one of my favorite characters in it, though, because he's just ridiculous. Come on, don't be a dyke. I mean, he's a, he's a, also a piece of shit. Actually, this movie is kind of full of pieces of shit. Almost every character is a piece of shit. Everyone but Jason Alexander. Everyone uh, but Jason Alexander. He's just selling porn to campers. Um, he's so just he's... getting it done. Well, okay, wait. Um, Yeah, no, wait. Yeah, he is. Okay, everyone's a piece of shit. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. Uh, you have Ned Eisenstein playing another creepy rapist motherfucker. Hey, skinny dip with me. Isn't it Eisenberg? Uh, oh, what the fuck? Ned Eisenberg. You like me? Why don't you fuck me? Yeah, everybody's kind of a fucking asshole. Like, most of the women in this are abused by the male characters, so I don't really feel bad when any of the male characters die in this film because they're all dickheads. And the, if they haven't raped anybody yet, they would grow up to rape someone. So fuck them. Don't care. I think it was Ned Eisenberg, but we also have to bring oh. up that our lead counselor and, you know, the head of all this is also somebody that set a guy on fire one time. So really not many characters are incredibly redeemable. I will say Woodstock. Did Fisher Stevens do anything that bad? I don't think Jacked so. Jacked off a lot. That's all I remember because Jason Alexander, oh, he's the, he's the jack-off champion this yeah. one. And unfortunately, if he hadn't been murdered, he probably would have lived to 90-something because according to Ernest Borgnine, if you masturbate a lot, you extend your life. It's good for you. I'm safe. On our couch today, we're going to talk to you in the after the show show, but real quickly, you're 91 years old. You look fantastic. You look like you're in your late 60s. Yeah, I masturbate a lot. I masturbate a lot. I masturbate a lot. <laughs> So, if anything, Fisher Stevens, what was he looking for? Was it vitamin E or vitamin? Yeah, <laughs> he, he had like to that. go back. Think... We're getting so ahead of this ourselves. He's really <laughs> sleazy at times, incredibly sleazy. But I mean, that's also another kind of one of its strengths. Yeah, that's I think truly one of the biggest strengths of this too. And what we're focusing with, we've gotten so ahead of ourselves. But the, the main scheme here is that. Uh, the caretaker, the, the I don't, you don't even really know what he is, the woodsman at a camp, the the creepy old. Uh, I, have, I have no idea what the fuck he's supposed to be. I guess he's just the 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 groundskeeper. He's like the equivalent of Willie from The Simpsons. Uh, is set on fire in a prank by some other campers, and he ends up surviving it, and then comes back to kill them all. And this is he really gets burned. Big yeah. Mac. 
Well, like, this is where things start becoming problematic, because when Cropsey is revived or is shown coming out of the hospital, he kills this prostitute right off the bat, which to me established that, you know, he's dangerous. He's going to kill absolutely everybody that gets into his path. But at the end of the movie, we find out that there was actually a reason to Cropsey doing all of this, which is neglected outside of one scene, a scene that always makes me truly laugh, and this is where... Um, the character that is spying on the other girls is being threatened to get kicked out of school, but they keep saying, I got balled out once, and you don't want to get balled out. You don't want to get balled out at all, because I got balled out. And back when I was a counselor or camper, I got balled out, and it's bad getting balled out. Balls, balls, balls. They say it like 32 times, and you, at the end of the movie, realize, oh, yeah, he got balled out because he set a guy on fucking fire. Should have gone to... He sent to, a guy like, to the hospital for like a year. He got kicked out of camp as to where... Alive. Yeah, he should have been sent to juvie or something, but no, he just got balled out. Balls, 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 balls. They say it so many times, so there's a, a very loose connection throughout the entire movie. You think the motivation is something like Friday the 13th, 2, 3, 4, it's just killing teenagers. That That's the whole point here. We're just going to kill teenagers, and then you're exposed to right at the end, oh, he he just wanted that one. I guess I don't know. I don't, it's still good. No, I, I just don't know. Just, I think he's just killing people, you know, just in blind fucking revenge to all the people that have wronged him. Which is and uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting is a they set up a, a giallo sort of angle in it where they the uh, black characters gloves. in the black gloves and the hat and he looks like he's out of uh, a Mario Bava film at a certain point. So it, it does have a very giallo. Well, they feel give you to all it. this costuming too. They show you at the beginning of the movie that Cropsy has this like long fedora hat and he's got a long coat and all this black leather and these gloves and none of it shows until the end of the movie from a pov fight scene i think it's when glazer dies that you see oh he's still got the coat and all this leather on and trekking through the woods in a hundred degree summer upstate new york all right whatever not a lot of attention to i guess true detail was paid who here. gives a shit yeah, it that's all i care about and you're moving um, here with such a quick pace of of just sleaze like the movie begins with just heavy ass shots it's very promiscuous it's very i guess you could say misogynistic it, it exposes the female body to bring you in right off the bat and that's kind of your sign you know this is a, a blood breast and beast movie that you're gonna get into something really greasy and like it starts off slow and for a slasher film, uh, even for uh, compared to um, what it was aping at the time, which is basically Friday the 13th, it starts out a little slow. You have the initial uh, burning effect, which is quite the fire stunt. I, I will give that credit. It's a really good fire stunt. And how um, was that done? Tom Savini set his own legs on fire, and oh, then not they that set one. somebody the else on fire. body burn. I can't remember who. he's. I think Gary Zeller might have done it, and I think he, he yeah, might be dead. I, uh, I can't um, recall his name. His father was a very famous stuntman, but he passed away about two years later on Airwolf and a helicopter crash. So yeah. I, 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 it's awful that somebody's passed away and I can't think of their name. But um, yeah, he did the actual body fire stunts and then the leg, the leg work uh, at the beginning of that scene. Savini set himself on fire. And like it does, you have that and you have the initial murder of the prostitute, which is kind of a crummy effect because she moves and you can see that the scissors, typical Savini effect, that the scissors have been cut off and, just, you know, it's a blunt end of scissors stuck in a per made it stuck on the surface of a person to make it look like they're inside. And then she like jostles around. You can kind of see where the scissors are no longer making contact with her body. You can see that they're blunt and, but whatever, that's just a, that's a little whiny fucking detail thing on my part. But up until like, God, I would say 45, maybe even 50 full minutes in, we really don't get any more murders. We get a lot of assumptions to like, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. A lot of buildup. And then the whole thing starts really breaking loose and you have a like bloody fucking murder after bloody fucking murder. And then you get to the raft scene and then it just, it's like a train ride and it just full throttle towards the end when you get the, uh, the cropsy, uh, the karate fight scene, the cropsy at the end. And when you do get that uncut version and you see the ax being buried in Cropsy's head and the, like the, the fucking volcanic level of blood that's shooting out of his skull, it's just, it, it it's transcendent. It's just kind of like, wow, this really like pays off. And there's a lot of payoff um, in that last like 20 to 30 minute um, runtime of the film. And I really enjoy that aspect about it. And then even the way they um, retell the, uh, the campfire story of Cropsey at the end, I think it kind of is a nice mellow way to take you out of the film. Um, so I, I generally like the direction of the film. And I think if you would have found somebody who 
probably didn't do music videos. Some a, a British gentleman to do it. It probably wouldn't come out this way. It would probably come out a lot sleazier than it is now, and it's pretty goddamn sleazy. But it does have a certain look and feel to it to make it feel somewhat classy, which is hard for me to say about a fucking Miramax film at this point. But it does have a level of class for a slasher film. Are you saying all the pretty is. horses isn't classy? Say what? Are you saying All the Pretty Horses is not a classy movie? You know what I mean. For, for a Weinstein early horror film that has a lot of ass shots and rapist fucking men in it, well, it I, does come off a little classy towards the end. Well, something you said about you know like using a esteemed British director, I think even if you'd used somebody like Toby Hooper, the movie would not have had the successful feeling that it has. And it truly is what's captured. And this is something we talked about last week. A motion picture is just a picture. So you have to capture it. And most of the glory with the burning was what was captured. And a lot of it obviously has to do with that kind of soft vignette and that Panaflex camera vibe to it. But the fact that Tony, uh, Tony Malum wasn't American, all of this was completely baffling to him. So he had the screenplay and he knew what he was working with and he knew how to shoot things. But somebody like Toby Hooper, for example, that knows about summer camp, that has this concept, that knows these stories, would have come in and would, like, let's look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It definitely has a cultural vibe. It, it has a feeling to that area. You can almost feel the desolation. You can almost feel the heat. And those touches are really brought on by things people know, but how, you know, what they've experienced that they can layer and put into the picture and put into the camera. And Tony Malum not really having any experience came in and just shot this and he put it together as he would have done you know an, another genesis rock and roll concert that he just got the shots in connection and figured out what was needed and let tone uh tom savini do what was necessary to get his shots and by the end product it was somebody that was so outside of this realm of consciousness that when they mixed it and edited it together in my opinion that outsider's touch is really what helped add almost like that classy affluency to the end of it, because you, you, especially once you get past the points of the, the raft massacre, and then they find the canoe going up river at the same time, it's sleazy, it's grindhouse, it's decadent violence, but there's just something almost pleasing about watching it. It's like you're watching an old Columbia movie. You know, it's, it's just got this really nice connection. It reflects the time period of which it was made. And it kind of feels like a, PBS like show about summer camp because there was a lot of summer camp stuff that wasn't you know slasher involved at all coming out in the 80s and it has the feel of like meatballs even um, where it really does feel like that that summer camp vibe to it and again another one of its major strengths um, you could watch the movie uh, if no one died I feel like if this was just a nice comedy about all these people getting together and Glazer's a bully and at the end of it they have a big softball game and everybody works it out I still feel you could watch the burning I mean it, it's just how Tony put it together and it's very I guess a shame that I mean not that he didn't get some job with Miramax and go on to make a bunch of bloated awful movies but that he didn't continue uh, and and this is in his own words with horror he has no interest in it the only horror film that Tony's ever liked was Alien and that was a big point with this movie too he wanted things to be as organic and naturally scary as Alien so he you know it, as odd of a connection as it is the burning and Alien kind of go hand in hand that he really relied on what he'd seen from Ridley Scott and what was presented in that final, the, the 79 production. And it's weird, but they kind of line up. And then the next movie we have lines up with two other films, uh, in my opinion. But it's weird. Everything connects. It's one big circle. So why this film was banned probably has... The, the VHS box art for the UK was uh, Cropsey on fire, which probably maybe like stirred some like some kind of fervor but i it probably has more to do with the fact that it is a slasher movie um it was hyper violent um i'll Garden get into tools. the original vhs release here in a second um but i think i don't want to say justifiably banned but i understand using the the bbfc's criteria of why this one was selected this isn't like one of those random weirdo ones this was a slasher film there are garden tools um and it does get hyper violent so and children are involved so that's 
all the reasons I would say probably caught the attention of the BBFC. I think the big scene was the raft scene. I mean, I think that's really what pushed oh, yeah. it was all the, the child violence. And, you know, you, you brought up at the beginning of this. So Fisher Stevens' fingers get cut off, and that's a little bit cheesy. But then you've got the, the Ned Eisenberg stabbed to the throat and that forehead slash. And those are immaculate. I mean, you can tell that it's a dummy and that Ned Eisenberg's head is sticking up from behind something else, but it's still great. It still is. It's Every time I see it, it's one of those kills that just make you go, oh, oh, it's, it's just an oh, you know, big Italian Sopranos. We'll insert a sound effect there. Oh. 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 I oh. Oh. Oh, push. Oh. Oh. Oh, Philly. Oh. Oh. Oh, Python. Back up. Oh. 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 But it's fun, and that's I hate using that goddamn word to review a movie. But if anything, at its core, no matter how graphic, misogynistic, uh, violence against women, violence against children, violence against everybody, the burning is. There's some level of fun to be had. It is very sleazy fun, though. It's not, you know, show your grandmother this. This is on a pretty high tier of 80s slashers because you have ones that worked and you have kind of the junk that came out. I would put this on, like, you know, top 10, like, 80s slashers, like Sleepaway Camp, this, Friday the 13th, um, Friday the 13th Part 2, <laughs> maybe, Um I, the like the mutilator. I don't know if I could. Maybe I could stick that in there. But I mean, that's more like that's more junk food than anything. Um, but as we do always on this show, I give little tidbits of information about it from the book, uh, "The Art of the Nasty" by Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris, which I have to continually say the authors' names from episode to episode. Go back to an old episode so I don't have to quote the fucking authors' uh, their names. Uh, but um. The Burning passed for the cinema with cuts and an X certificate in September of 1981. An uncut version was released in error by Thorn EMI in October of 1982, which is also probably a reason it got banned. Red-faced, they placed ads in the trade press appealing to dealers to return their uncut copies in exchange for the BBFC-approved version, which was sent back, taped over with the cut version, and with the date of the fresh duplication stamped on the cassette label. Surprisingly, many dealers kept the uncut version. That's definitely not surprisingly. Um, Vidco re-released it uncut in August of 2002, so you can find this on an uncut Blu-ray or DVD in the UK at this point, so it's completely off any sort of ban list. And I, as I always do on these episodes, I looked for the, um, the uh, original VHS PAL Thorn EMI tape, because that's the one you're looking for if you're trying to purchase, you know, the video nasties, the original copies of the video nasties. And I I found one and either it's really low priced or they don't know what they have. It just seemed like something was up or it's some kind of bootleg. I'm not sure because the price on it was um, 10 pounds and it was signed by Tom Savini, which doesn't sound right unless this one is just like not very sought after for whatever reason. I mean, it's fucking signed by Tom Savini. It's $10 yeah, at or least 10 pounds. A, a Savini autograph should go for 50 bucks. So it's just, I found it to be completely strange. That was the only one I could find though. And as I remind everyone where you could just buy it, if you've never seen it before, I've mentioned it before. I watched this shout factory version for this. Episode. And arrow has put it out as well. Yeah. Uh, shout factory arrow. I mean, we talk about all these companies, but a lot of the, like Severin, I feel does some of the best video nasty releases and, you know, Severin's where you need to go to find some things like love camp seven beast in heat. Um, I got almost they're the premier dealer of video nasties and uh, like of a UK label. at least. David Gregory on his own is an aficionado. I feel I think it's one of the reasons I can't I don't know personally. I don't know the guy's backstory, but looking at what his interests are and what he has has released, I definitely feel he's an aficionado of the video nasties and being British. It's something incredibly cultural that we don't. See, and it's it's this is a, an interesting crossroads rap because you and I are Americans that have fallen in love with the video nasties. We want to talk about their history and the movies and our feelings on the movies, but we aren't British whatsoever. So this affected us almost like rock and roll that we got into it inherently because it sounded really edgy and really cool. But there were people that grew up in, in England that, you know, were part of this 
when it came out that still like Kim Newman got uh, David Gregory that were there and found these movies and got to feel the the hate literally we're buying them out of people's trunks of their cars for fuck's sakes this was like you're buying drugs i mean it was you had to do some black market underground shit to get these and we talk about it like it's a cool subgenre, but for a lot of people this literally the video nasties were almost a way of life finding these movies and to just see some people of them. went to jail that's all you had to say. Some people actually went over to jail acts. for possessing Lisa these. fucking Lisa. People went to jail over that. People went to jail over Beast in Heat. And it, it wasn't just Franco. You know, it wasn't Joe Diamato. These guys weren't the ones that went to jail. That's the most hysterical part. Somebody that probably should have gone to jail for some of their productions is the director of our next movie. I like the guy. I say his fucking name wrong every time we talk about it. But I'm going to get it right tonight. Antonio... Margretti. Yes, because the next film we're talking about is Cannibal Apocalypse, or under the moniker I saw it as is Invasion of the Flesh Hunters, or the original Italian title, which is Apocalypse Domania, Domani. which I think is Apocalypse Soon. Yes, it, it's translated. like Apocalypse Soon, Apocalypse Tomorrow. There also is another great title. Cannibals in the streets. I love that one. Yeah, <laughs> and That's then there's like Night of the Makes Flesh. It's like a weird Warriors movie. There's another, isn't, or is it Night of the Flesh? Something. There's a, there's this movie. Invasion of the Flesh. There Hunters we go. What I saw, I saw it on a videotape cut American version, which was Invasion of the Flesh Hunters, because I was just a big uh, John Saxon fan. And um, who is this one's kind of interesting? From oh yes, 1980. Very specific. We have to do the 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 years on these. Um, Cannibal Apocalypse is a weird fucking movie. Uh, it's definitely Italian. It feels Italian. Um, John Saxon does not make it feel any less Italian. And the story yeah, that's itself actually a is funny point you brought up. Really weird. But uh, out of everyone in the movie, of Giovanni Lombardo Radice, the legendary, one of his earliest roles, I think he had just done um, Health on the Edge of the Park with David Hess by Ruggiero Diodato prior to this, and then we have... I'm feeling that disco right now. Yeah, God, that one of the greatest soundtracks of any movie of all time. And then I, I don't think he had done anything, you know, nothing legendary uh, at this point, and then moved on to, you know, with Antonio Margretti making this film, which is a weird one for Margretti that most of his career was, uh, I wouldn't even say exploitation. I mean, he made everything, but a lot of westerns, a lot of action movies, if you recognize crappy sci-fi, if you recognize the name recently, it's who Rick Dalton goes to work for, and once upon a time in Hollywood, that now even Quentin Tarantino is pulling in Margretti into his universe. So it's he's one of I think the most important Italian directors because he was one of those guys that could do fucking everything and literally did everything, worked with everyone, worked with every actor you can think of, um, and like Giovanni Lombardo Radice. It's Nick Alexander that does his voice for this, right? I, I cannot remember. I don't remember who does I know Alexander was in charge of doing all the dubbing, so I'm assuming. He's in there somewhere. Yeah. I can tell you that right now. I Maybe. He, he, nah, he's probably the Warren Weasley guy, because the Nick Alexander is the, the kind of the British guy who talks like this uh, uh, and oh. has no inflection in his voice. This is much more like Giovanni Lombardo Radice in the Fulci film. It's a very weird, high-pitched kind of man. Yeah, the voice. weasel voice that they use in all these uh, Italian dubs. And, but that's what's funny to me is that out of, out of all of the movie, that it's obviously a dub, it's obviously it's not Radice's voice, John Saxon still seems so out of place. He seems so alien in this entire movie to me, and I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, misinterpretation of, of what was going on that, you know, he had dealt a lot with Margretti. He had read the script, but he had this idea in his head of being a really straight laced green beret guy. And he wouldn't shoot a lot of the stuff that was asked to do. And uh, I don't know. It, it just, everything's baffling. He does not. And I love John Saxon. I just don't feel him. The story itself this. is fairly baffling because what it poses is that cannibalism is a disease that can be acquired. It's almost like uh, I've being a zombie something. because is it just the cannibalism or is it inherently the, now bear with me, the idea of war or violence in war can be caught. And that's almost what I feel like the gist might have apparent tried to have been that like, you know, you go, to Vietnam, for example, and you see all these abhorrent, awful things and all these atrocities and these these physical, horrible acts of violence, is that, like, 
could you catch it? Could you see so much of that violence that it becomes almost like a plague to you? And I feel the movie poses this kind of question of, can you catch all of this anti-human violence and it come back into your life as sort of a, a philosophical idea, but what is presented and given to you on screen is just such a bizarre mis mismatch of all of these and just a lot of uh, plotless, weird... I mean, half the movie is a 20-minute shootout with Giovanni Lombardo Radice. I mean, that's a quarter of the movie is from when he goes to the movie theater to the shootout, and then it's just... What's his character's name, though? That's the weirdest aspect of this movie. Charlie Bukowski. Charles Bukowski, he's going crazy at the flea market. And then John Saxon's named Hopper, so I don't know if it's like a connection from Apocalypse Now and that they were just trying to use kind of conveniently popular names. I mean, but looking at 1980 at this era of Char the Charles Bukowski, the, uh, the, the beat poet, well, he's not really a beat poet, but he was writing poetry at the same time, the American drunk Charles Bukowski, he wasn't like super famous, in 1980, I mean, it was more or less going into the late 80s, 90s when his name and became kind of quintessential in reading and drunk guys in their early 20s would talk about him. So I almost wonder if it's just, you know, they named the guy Charles Bukowski and it's completely random. I've never been able to find a real connection between all this outside of the connection between this movie and Apocalypse Now and John Saxon being named Hopper. Yeah, and the, the film itself is like, it's a strange grouping of ideas and the way the story flows because it starts off in Vietnam and rescuing his POW friends, John Saxon doing that. And then we go in kind of a more modern times in, in Atlanta. I'm pretty sure they actually shot this in yep. Atlanta. Um, and like he has to save his friend who's gone crazy at a movie theater and is now shooting up a flea market and the cops bring him in. And it's kind of his fault too. Down. I mean, he, cause Bukowski calls him and asks to go for a beer and he denies it so he can have sex with a 15 year old. Um, and doesn't, he ends up biting her, which it, we'll get into that in a minute because all of this is weird to me. And what they don't show you in the movie, I think is the weirdest part, but apparently by him hanging up the phone, that was supposed to be what triggers Bukowski to go into his rage. So it's all of it's John Saxon's fault, and it comes back to the very beginning of the movie <laughs> that he didn't help them in enough time. But that's even really muddled upon that you okay, they're they're POWs and Saxon and his Green Berets are coming in to save them, and a Vietnamese woman gets blown up and a piece of her charred flesh falls into the pit. And Jival Lombardo Radice and the other actor begin to vehemently eat this and then become infected. So it's not like she was a zombie or a monster or, or anything. They just ate her and have now become infected with uh, an uncurable desire to eat flesh while John Saxon is bit yeah. at the same time. Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like Joe Bob Briggs trying to make sense of a movie here. But as the point progresses, because a lot of the uh, the the shootout scene takes up a big chunk of this Dude, movie. It and then we just kind of quarter of the movie. I think it's almost exactly 22 minutes from when he leaves the movie theater and the whole just piss on it. Remember, just that entire sequence. And, and that's where the movie turns into a very long episode of the A-Team. It just doesn't stop. You also get an appearance from the guy that killed Johnny Rads in. Uh, it's not House by the Cemetery. City of the Living Dead shoves the. Uh, weird drill thing into his head he plays the police officer in that sequence and you've got the greatest knockoff george papard ever i love that dude <laughs> he's like a very which there's even a goddamn george papard reference that's the movie he goes to see is a fucking <laughs> it's an uh it's an umberto Lindsay movie i think it's a, it's something about war but i'm so excited bringing up george papard i gotta shut up i'm sorry i love the a-team there's some like really interesting things in this movie but as far as like a level of violence doesn't really start happening until like three fourths of the way into the movie. I mean, it does have violence, but like real gripping Italian style violence that doesn't happen until about three fourths of the way through when all these POW guys and these ex soldiers and this doctor that they bring in and a couple other people, like they all just get like weirdly hypnotized by the flesh almost. And they all kind of just start going on a rampage and killing. And while well, the cops are chasing them, and it, it's just a really weird vibe of a movie. But it, when you do get to some violent scenes, like uh, Johnny Rads, I don't know why I keep calling him fucking Johnny Rads. <laughs> I guess we've always called him that. Giovanni. We'll call him Giovanni because that's the fucking You name. called him it's Johnny name, Rads to me sakes. 10 years ago, and that's all I've ever been able to have in my head. Yeah, Johnny Rads. You know what I'm talking about. No? Oh, yeah. 
John Morgan, Giovanni Lombardo Radice, the esteemed, beautiful Shakespearean actor who is king of the Italian dweeb role. We all know and love him. Him getting killed is a really good kind of effect that um, I still not really sure. I mean, I have an idea of how they pulled it off, but they pulled it off really well. Um, we, he gets this hole shot through his stomach, this, you know, hole you can see, like it's way better than any sort of a uh, blue screen thing they did in death becomes her. Um, and then at the end, which is one of the reasons I would say, besides the violence, the subject matter of cannibalism, one of the reasons this film got banned was animal abuse because the cops are chasing them in the sewers with flamethrowers. And there's also rats in the sewers and they just set some fucking rats on fire in this movie, living rats, because you just see a big ball of flame into a bunch of rats and they're all running off on fire, which is kind of fucking gross. Um, but goddamn Italians just uh, give a shit in the eighties. They did not get, there was no PETA. There was no humane society on the, on the set of this film because they did kill a fair amount of rats. Um, so that's probably a good reason why it was banned. Um, but other than that, for a cannibal film, the, the, the red shit just don't drip that much in it, but that's okay. I mean, it does have superior acting. Um, it's filmed really well. Marguerite has a pretty decent eye. Uh, it's filmed less like an Italian horror film and more like a, an Italian comedy. I don't know if that makes sense or not to you, but it does to me. It feels like a, like an Italian comedy to me um, shot in the same way, but it is uh, now that it's been restored on uh, DVD and Blu-ray uh, it looks really good. It's not quite as uh, ugly as it used to be, like when it was Evasion of the Flesh Hunters or stuff like that. Um, but I, I, Cannibal Apocalypse is just not one of my favorite Italian films. I love John Saxon. I really do. But it's just he's not enough. Giovanni Lombardo Redice is not enough. It just kind of bores me. I, 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 sad to say, I know, but it's just it's not one of my favorites. It's all right. I will, I will give it that. I much. think a lot of it comes down to its pacing because you get to that twenty-minute scene where the shootout happens and it ends fairly poorly. There's no real action, and then once the violence starts, you've already gotten paced to the point that you're a little bored. But you brought up something again that interested me, and it just goes back to my whole theory about the contagious nature of violence. And I think that kind of is the the like exposition that we're looking at here is all of these people that were in Vietnam, the Giovanni Lombardo Radice character and the John Saxon character witnessed and were uh, forced to commit these atrocious acts of violence for the sa sake of survival. And I think what we're toying with is the idea that all of this within them, that they are infected by the war and that it's, an overall statement kind of coming off the idea of Apocalypse Now and what the, the character had to deal with going up the river and going after Colonel Kurtz and how empty and lonely he so was. So you're basically saying it's, it's like Rambo? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot more thought put into it that didn't end up on screen. Uh, one of my favorite Italian screenwriters, um, Dardano Sacchetti, wrote this movie, and, and it, it really, what makes me think this is the ending and how this movie ends. And it ex ends exactly like one of our favorite movies and something we've already talked about on the video nasties, Bay of Blood. It astonishingly matches up with Apocalypse Now, almost like an inversion of Apocalypse Now. All the themes that weren't really discussed and what happens like when that lead character after killing Kurtz comes home and all the violence inside of him. And what about the photojournalist that Dennis Hopper played? All of these people displaced by the idea and the atrocity and the the grotesque nature of war, all of that carries over. It, it even almost becomes spiritual to a point of things like people suffering their entire lives from post-traumatic stress disorder. It's instilled inside your brain and soul, all these atrocities you've seen. And none of this shows up on screen. I mean, I'm just theorizing here. I'm talking out of my ass pretty much. <laughs> but, you know, it, this it's just the deeper look. Uh, who thought this would be the deep one? We're, we're looking uh, into the ideas behind it. But because Sacchetti wrote it, and he's just a beautifully clever writer, and he's written some of everyone's favorites. The Beyond, he wrote Zombie with Fulci, uh, and Bay of Blood, more importantly. This movie has a really neat transition, because at the end, some of the incomplete things that I had mentioned earlier that aren't shown come into uh, relevancy here, that you've got the children killing their parents, and it ends in that weird, upbeat, uh, just bizarre feeling that Bay of Blood ended with. But you, none of it's connected. None of these things, just as I've been going over at the beginning of the movie, they're accentuating violence and bringing it back over. But what happens is John Saxon gets bitten by a dude. He comes home and he bites this 15-year-old that lives next door 
and she gets infected, bites her brother, I guess, and they kill the family. None of this is shown on screen. All of it's speculative. All of it's placing and putting these ideas together. And like I had mentioned, too, it, it, it really does run and feel like a very long episode of the A-Team. It has that action-esque vibe. I had made a notion earlier that both of the films we were talking about tonight had weird soundtracks. This is weird in that, like, Suspiria uh, soundtrack essence of when the Italians use really crazy, funky music and absolute scenes of violence, and it throws you off a little bit. Well, to me, like, this feels less like an Italian horror film and more like an Italian action or crime film, and that's probably why I'm not as into it as I am to other Italian horror films. Because, I, like, I can appreciate Italian crime films they just don't do it. Like they're insanely violent at times, um, but the story themselves just don't like they, they don't hold up for me. They're just kind of bland. I'm not a big crime film fan, regardless if it's Italian or not, and that's what this feels like. And it feels very, hmm, very 1980s with just kind of some strange, almost uh, cop show music in it, which is like uh, it's like Hill Street Blues almost. I don't know. There's a good story with John Saxon and Mike Reddy where Saxon had gone to his hotel room and they were in Georgia. They're talking about the script and they have everything together. And Mike Reddy asks him, you know, well, what do you what do you think about this? What do you think about the script? And Saxon, you know, does some Saxon stuff and talks his way out of it. Because if you've ever watched an interview with this guy, if you've ever dealt or you know, educated yourself on the sax man, he can talk about anything. And he could eloquently, nicely talk about anything, even if it was the worst scenario or situation. For some reason, he's just a positive guy. He's got a can-do attitude, John Saxon. And Margretti asks him, well, what do you think of the script? And he, he tells him, you know, I, well, I kind of get this idea that, you know, is it the, everything I've just ranted about war coming and you get infected by the idea of vengeance? And I don't know. I think it's a good script. And Margretti just looked at him and went, I don't think it is. I don't think it is at all. <laughs> Giovanni Lombardo Radice is on tape saying it's the dumbest script he ever read. It's a stressful idea. And I just spat out all this technical shit that's literally just in my ass i don't think anyone has some weird theory about cannibal apocalypse being the inherent nature of violence being infected through people it's a thought though i mean it's something it's <laughs> i mean it's it's there i mean the overtones are definitely there it's just i think the way it's made and the that crime feeling of it it just doesn't feel like they were interested in telling that particular idea or that story it was more of a story of like let's get from point a to point b and we're not going to try to explain anything about what we're trying to say it's just it's literally like a cash and carry idea of just like boom 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 here we are and now this is the end and it it just doesn't resonate with me i think too some of that has to do with margretti and i don't want to say he didn't know how to make a horror movie like i know how to make a horror movie or i'm some well, he's no Fulci, I'll say yeah, that. Yeah, it's just his entire career wasn't really mainlined or based into this, and it's kind of on paper and obvious. He didn't, he wasn't excited. This wasn't some passion project. There wasn't some spiritual nature behind him making this movie. It was handed to him, and he did it, and it got done. But at the same time, you, I mean, he is an incredibly talented director. It's not like it's inadequately made. It's just not handled correctly. So much... Uh, so much emphasis is put onto the action and that you get into this idea and you are invoked through the music and even how like Lombardo Radice's actions are, John Saxon, it feels like it's going to be like a, like a Norish cop drama. I mean, it really feels like an Italian uh, police crime exploitation movie. And then it goes into this like hyper-violent overdrive once the nurse is bitten and it just doesn't make a lot of sense, and that's the worst part is you, you really want to follow through with everything because it's done nicely and you like these actors, you like what's going on, just at the end of it, especially the very last scene when it's like, oh, so they got, he oh, so yeah, he did bite that girl, I guess, because none of it's shown. When John Saxon goes to bite the girl, says, I had made a notion that he didn't want to film certain parts of the script. This was one of them. There were just a lot of scenes that he wasn't comfortable doing and would straight up say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to shoot this scene. So they had to cut and edit things, and you get this idea that he either uh, performs cunnilingus or bites this this kid, pretty much, this teenager, um, and I, I, there's no clarity. Like, there's absolute no clarity what he did or what happens or what goes on afterward. Wait a minute. I've seen Hands of Steel, 
I'm having a hard time believing John Saxon has standards. <laughs> See, yeah, there's 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 so many questions that we just don't know unless we could get John Saxon because he's done sleazier things. But two, uh, and just listening to interviews and hearing what he had to say about the movie, I, I feel that he thought that this was a much more military action-esque kind of thing and that they were making like a, a stand-up Green Beret movie and he didn't want to be portrayed as like... A flesh-eating cannibal? Well, more like uh, just a sleazy rapist oh. Vietnam, you know, like uh, Tom Berenger in Platoon. He didn't want to be portrayed—I mean, the movie wasn't made at that time period, but just trying to paint a picture for, for everybody. Uh, he did want to be portrayed as a sleazy bad guy. And so maybe—I I mean, I just don't know. I've heard in interviews, too, him saying he didn't really fully understand the script, that it was very obviously written in Italian, and the translation wasn't that great. I And— Two, adding in with why John Saxon might have done this movie, he was going through a really wicked divorce at the time, had two houses, and was paying two mortgages. He was very happy to get the job done, and I assume the same thing for Giovanni Lombardo Radice. I think everyone was happy to work and travel and just just do it. And the final product, nobody ever seems happy with. Whenever you hear anybody talk about this... Um, Johnny Morgan, Johnny Rads, uh, John Saxon, the Antonio Margretti passed away, I believe, in 2002 or 2003, but there is some tapes of him speaking of it. No one really likes it. I mean, and it's like you said, it's not like it's a bad movie. It's not like there's a fault or a problem with it. It's just so dull to get through. It's fun, and it's one of those things you remember or you hear about, like, oh, yeah, it's on the video nasties. It's going to be great. And then you sit down and go through it, and it's just this weird mix mash Frankenstein's monster of a war movie and an action movie and a police chase and then there's some horror and there's a lot of weird sleaze and sexuality but they just threw everything at once I don't know it I still like it and have a lot of appreciation for it but it's so even now just stumbling and trying to talk about it, I don't know I, I I don't know I mean, I own a copy of it, but that doesn't mean it's just like on my height, the uh, on my you know high on my list of it or anything. Um, but if we the more we work through these um, video nasties, the higher up on the list it goes because there's some real dog shit on these on this, all these different lists. And Cannibal Apocalypse, Apocalypse is the least of your worries. Um, at least it's a coherent film to sit through. It's just a little dull. It's no axe. It's not that dull by Which any stretch of the imagination. Which is odd because I still defended Axe pretty heavily. Like I, I enjoy it for what it is. And Axe is one of those things like Spookies. I think I like the story of how it was made and why it was made more, which lends appreciation to things, which can be said for uh, Aristide Masichese and, and uh, Jess Franco and, and Umberto Lindsay, just all of these guys that, I mean, you and I don't, inherently love Umberto Lindsay movies but by no means does that mean he's a bad director or he has done shitty work he just was a gun and a lot of the work that he did like Fulci and everybody else in that same field yeah some of it's pretty shitty and just heavy close-ups and weird sex and pubes <laughs> all right um going through the uh the art of the nasty book the section on cannibal apocalypse the cannibal films were among the first to join the so-called nasties list. Never screened theatrically in the UK, this uncut version was released in July of 1982. A new sleeve was designed by VPD for a proposed re-release, but it was never issued. The film about cannibal Vietnam veterans is now available on British DVD, but the BBFC ordered a cut of two seconds in order to remove a sight of a rat being set on fire. Uh, and the one that you're looking for, uh, if you're buying, purchasing these, is the, hmm, which one is it? Uh, replay. And I couldn't find it. It's the replay label, and I couldn't find one for sale or one that had sold. So I have no idea what the price of it is. If you are looking for a somewhat affordable copy to watch and enjoy, I would highly recommend the Kino Lorber Classics Edition, which is what I purchased. And it's it's got a lot of information. Everything that you just heard on the show, more than likely, came from that disc. And it <laughs> helps make a lot of sense to things. But, you know, too, if you've gotten into the video nasties and you're following the show with us and you do pick up this, listen to the commentary and tell me what you think. Because a lot of the ideas I've taken to form this whole theory about uh, violence being contagious came from a mixture of everyone. I mean, John Saxon had a lot of potent things to say about his thoughts of the movie. 
Uh, Mark Reddy had a lot of thoughts on the movie. Uh, Giovanni Bardiche had a lot of thoughts on the movie. And just hearing all these guys talk about it kind of formed this thought in my head. And this is something like The Burning that I saw um, probably for the first time around 15 or 16, looking up the video nasties for the very first time and, and hunting these down on bootlegs and, and just trying to see everything. I mean, I think when, when you're a, a cinephile, the big thing is you just kind of want to see it all, even though that's completely unreasonable and you never will, but you'll chase the dream, we chase the dream. And I never thought about it before. I always took it as an average zombie movie, and it's not really zombies, it's not really cannibals, it all runs off of these ideas and things that were becoming popular in Italian cinema and grindhouse cinema and making money around the same time, and it leeches off uh, somewhat the Ramiro idea of zombies, and they become flesh eaters, and then you've got this weird transition with the idea of Apocalypse Now, and that inherently is what Margretti wanted to do, was cash in on, on Coppola's Apocalypse Now, and to make something sentimental but still uh, invoking a feeling or a message of the war and then it just turns into this very bizarre uh, hard run sleazy movie it's just a, a a perfect example of bad handling I guess you could say there were so many good ideas and so many good thoughts put behind what was going to happen here and what ended up happening I mean just like Apocalypse Now initially God Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas were going to make some weird war documentary and then it you know, turned into what's still being released now. I think last year or earlier this year, there was a new cut of Apocalypse Now Coppola has put out, the final cut or whatever. Still, the movie... I don't know. I was in the theater, and I saw Apocalypse Now Redux. It's five hours long, and so much of that added footage is kind of pointless, like with the Playboy models, helicopter crashing the French uh, plantation. It's just like, this is all unnecessary to what story they're telling. The Playboy shit, that's fine. I don't mind that. But the whole French plot, I get why you put it in there and why it was important to make a notion of the French left in Vietnam. But uh, it's really going back to like some of the scenes and sequences, even with the burning. There's just so many weird things with both of these movies that was put in for storytelling purposes that don't play off. Like, for example, with the burning, you get this idea they're trying to give you a juxtaposition of like okay maybe this is the killer or maybe somebody else is the killer so we've got the creep spying on the girls but you get this one brief scene of the jock kind of like stabbing and cutting himself with a dart and then nothing else like there's just weird ideas in both of these movies that are dropped into your lap and nothing is done with them like in cannibal apocalypse when saxon supposedly bites the girl and it's referenced later with his wife he talks about it and his craving for flesh and how he doesn't understand it but none of these narrative points go back to each other and that really makes it just just such a confusing experience to try and go through and by the end of it with both of these movies it's like so wait, was Cropsey going to kill the counselor? Or was he just killing everyone? Uh, it doesn't fucking matter. Was he just, was he cannibal? Or is that, it doesn't fucking matter. You're literally left with, eh, it doesn't fucking matter. It was still kind of cool. You saw some boobs. You saw some blood. You saw some beasts. I mean, you got everything you wanted out of the experience. It was sleazy. It's grindhouse. It's, it's horror, man. I mean, both of these films, I think, are... Class A quintessential horror. If you're getting into sleaze, you're getting into exploitation, you want to learn disappointment very quickly. You watch movies like this and slowly start to realize, like the Findlay movie Snuff, you're going to hear about shit for years and it's going to sound so amazing and it's going to sound fucking brutal. And then you watch it and it's the biggest flaccid fucking dick ever. There's nothing. And... I mean, there's a lot to be found in The Burning and Cannibal Apocalypse, but Snuff by the Findleys is a big, flaccid dick. Yeah, I'd say that would pretty much sum up the uh, these two video nasties. I mean, we got some pretty decent ones this time. Next time is going to be goddamn heartache and pain. It's not in a bad way, not in an, oh, these movies suck way, and more of a... I cannot believe I have to sit through all this fucking old horrible violence. Both these movies stacked together. If next week's what I think it is, I guess this is a statement to my mentality. I'm pretty excited because one of them is one of my least favorite movies, which I will talk about all day long. And then one of them is one of my favorite movies, which really says something about me. I don't know what, but it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I guess that'll do it for this week. We are nastied out. The ashtray is full. The bottle's empty. We've missed the horror train. We've missed the horror taxi. I don't know if we can get an Uber or whatever. I think I've made this joke before. <laughs> Death by DVD. 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 recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. I like death by DVD. It's a statement.